Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. I'm David Delaney, your host, and I'm joined today by Udi Lettergore, the CMO of Gong. How are you doing today, sir? I'm great, David. Great to see you again. Oh, my gosh. I've been so excited about this. Um, you know, obviously a big fan from afar of your work and the work that you've done at, at Gong. Udi, tell us about your background. How did you get into marketing and your journey to leading the marketing efforts at Gong? You know, one of my first grown-up jobs was product manager. Product manager, I did that role for five years. It was super interesting. I see that role as kind of sitting on the fence between the customers and the engineering team, trying to explain to the customers what the heck it is that the engineering team concocted for them and why it's valuable and why they should care. And at the same time, turning around and telling engineering what they should develop next, what customers like about the product, what they hate about it, and what they want to see next. And over the course of five years of doing that, I found that I'm much more drawn to the part of communicating what we have and how it provides value to customers. I was getting less excited about telling engineers where to put the button on the screen, not to belittle what product management does, but it felt like that a little bit sometimes. So that's when I decided that after five years in product management, I would like to take on marketing as a full-time role. And I started incorporating a lot of marketing activities into my product management role. At the company that I was at the time, I went to the CEO and I said, look, I think we need a full-time marketing function to do this, 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 and that. And I've got just the guy for you. What do you say that in the next six months or so, I'll transition out of the product management role, I'll hire someone else to, to fill my shoes, and then I'll take on marketing. And fortunately for me, he agreed. That's how I got my first marketing role. I just created it at a company that didn't have it. I felt it needed it. I took on the role, made the case and got it. And from there, I moved on, built several other marketing teams. So five in total, including the one at Gong. Before taking on the role at Gong, I needed a semi-sabbatical or fake retirement, call it what you like. And I did a couple of years of consulting just to take some of the burden of the accountability of growing a startup off my back for a short while while I was having my second and third child and needed a bit of a break from the startup world. But then my CEO at Gong, Amit, called me a little over six years ago, told me that the 12 beta customers they had rolled the, the product to, 11 of them had become paying customers within three months. So he would like to start marketing the heck out of this and asked if I would come help. And at that point, I felt ready to come back into the game. And I did. And the rest is kind of history. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So only 12 customers. So I guess the writing is on the wall, but they found product market fit, would you say? Or were you still trying to figure that out when you joined? You know, the search for product market fit never really ends because the market changes, the customer needs changes, you get competitors and they try keeping up with you initially. And then you try to keep up with some of what they're doing initially. And then others enter the space and then there's consolidation between different spaces. So the search for product market fit never ends. But I would say that one of the things that gave us that critical head start was achieving early product market fit where customers starting using the product and they just got the value and they decided to continue using it. And that made everything infinitely easier for marketing, for sales, for the fundraising, for the rest of the organization. Okay. And so you felt pretty good about that. And then where did you start? You come in, it's your first day. Where do you even start with something so early and, you know, go start to talk to people about it? Yeah. So I think it's, 
A similar story across most companies at that stage. I definitely sort of replayed some of the playbook that I'd used in previous companies. I came in and we were right after our seed round, if you can believe mm -hmm. that. So very early days, shoestring budget. And it was clear that the first priority for marketing needs to be building a brand in a way that would quickly create demand. Because without the demand, you know, we're not going to make it to the next funding round. You're not going to have that market traction that investors are looking for. So that was definitely the first focus. Everything else, like having a pretty website and deciding what our colors are going to be and finding the right bulldog for the mascot, all that could wait. We just needed to get some leads in and get meetings for the salesperson who was my CEO, Amit. He actually sold to the first 100 customers. I was acting as both marketer, SDR, and everything in between to make sure that he had people to speak to. So that was kind of the initial goal. And then breaking that down, again, which is typical for companies at stage, if you look at the marketplace at, at any given moment, there's you can think of the target addressable market as pockets that you can color in red, yellow, and green. The red are the ones that are never going to buy from you for some reason or another. Either they're just terrible laggards or they don't like your product or colors or they'll never want to do business with you. Just put them aside. Don't worry about them. Then there's the green folks, which are ready to buy now. And in the early days, those are the innovators and early adopters that like shiny new objects and have sort of a visionary look on their business and industry and are willing to try new things. So those are, are the low-hanging fruits that you want to get to first, but you kind of quickly run out of them. And then the rest of the market is, you can imagine them colored in yellow. Those are the folks that will maybe buy from you sometime. And the trick is to start focusing on nurturing those yellow folks early on. And this is primarily the job of marketing and SDR and later on some sales as well. And the goal there is to stay top of mind for them so that if six, 12, 18 months later, they are now searching for a solution in your category, you're the first name that comes to mind for them. And to do that, we had to build a content marketing machine, which was a big area of focus for us in the early days and still is. And we added to that an event plan and awards plan and corporate communication plan and all that. But that's kind of the main stepping stones. Happy to dive into any of them that are interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. So at first, this was back in 2016, 2017. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I remember seeing a meet at a sales hacker offshoot event that sales hacker put on at Dreamforce. And he was, he was the main salesperson probably talking to people that you had introduced him to. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> That's right. Okay. And then you were doing everything yourself and thinking short-term and long-term at the same time, it seems. Yes. The trick is always to balance, isn't it always in life, the short-term and the long-term. So, you know, while the milkshake and fries seem like a good idea right now, probably not a great idea if you think about the long-term, but it, it, it's okay sometimes to take shortcuts and just have that guilty pleasure. But you have to think about your marketing that way as well. So balancing short-term, which to me, short-term in creating demand in an early stage startup is aggressive outbounding to quickly go have conversations with prospects, understand what's broken about your pitch or product, what don't they get, what don't you get, why aren't they seeing the value, and quickly iterating both in product and sales pitch until you have something that starts clicking and sticking. And at the same time, starting to build the motion for the longer term inbound, which means creating brand awareness, creating content marketing that people flock to and subscribe to and want to follow and look forward to receiving every week. 
And that's not the type of email of, hey, more and more companies are doing something. Now, here's how our product can help. That's not content marketing. That's just bad product marketing. Content marketing is delivering valuable content that actually makes the day of your prospects better by solving a problem that they have. And you can solve that problem with a template or a cheat sheet or a checklist or a variety of other stats and analysis that give them actionable insights that they can go and do something better that day. And you should not be pitching your product when you do that. As we did that with our Gong Lab series, where we, we've been showcasing for the last six years what's actually working in sales based on real data, not Udi's opinion, not Amit's opinion, just based on our data that we now have tens of millions of sales calls and emails that are analyzed regularly and then formed into the story. People flocked to that. And that's how we hit, I think we're at like 180,000 LinkedIn followers and hundreds of thousands of email subscribers and hundreds of thousands of downloads of our podcast. All these ways and channels that we use to get this research out there, people find super valuable. And guess what? In a year, if they need a solution like Gong, they'll go, oh, well, I want to go to this company that I've been getting so much value from already. I've been reading their content every week. They've already helped me so much and I haven't even given them a dime. I should at least go check out their product now that I'm in the market for it. Mm -hmm. The long tail. And it's so interesting because it seems like the two or three companies came out sort of at the same time and they had a similar story, it seems, you know, to converge the inside sales motion with the fact that you're using Zoom and you can analyze the conversations and you're probably doing a lot more than that. But around that time, there were a few companies, but then it got sort of narrowed down to yours and maybe one or two other ones. And that they were, those are all the ones when people understood the value of what you were doing, then now they had to put it into, okay, it's gong and one and two. That's all we're going to talk to. And, you know, somehow gong was able to really establish yourself as that go-to brand. Yes. Yes. That's a pretty accurate depiction. You know, there were three companies. One of them was more of a sort of small technology afterthought of a consulting company. So that got you know, dissolved after a few years and never hit serious market traction. The other company was acquired about 18 months ago for, I think it was 8% of Gong's valuation at the same time. They were a very distant second. And without sounding like a cliche, I think the number one difference between all companies who had, you know, roughly the same timing when they came out to market, actually Gong was the last to come to market by a few months compared to the other two. They had access to funding. They had access to talent. At the end of the day, it really is the team and it, it starts from the top and the ability to hire even more A talent. So it starts with the team and with the right team, you can make the better product decisions. You can make the better go-to-market decisions. You can build a better brand. There's several ways of getting to success, but you know, looking back at those companies and speaking to their executives that are no longer there, they, they admit that they did not move fast enough. They were trying to tinker with the product for way too long in the labs before releasing things. And we've just moved much faster, got valuable feedback from the market, and we're able to iterate much faster on what the market needs. Some of those companies, they just didn't believe in marketing or didn't want to invest in marketing until very late in the game when they realized that Gong was building a big advantage, not only with its superior product, but also with superior marketing. And they, they admit that mistake today. So those are some of the things, but it really all starts with the team, like having a team of the right mix of experience and skill and potential 
you can do almost anything. Oh my gosh, it's so true. And there's two big things that really stick out with Gong that you mentioned. One is the content marketing. And then the other one is the brand. And so let's dive in with the content marketing. You hit a couple of things. One is that you're using the product to drive the material and the problems that you can actually hear. It's like a cycle. You hear the problems on Gong calls and then you put it into the content and you can use the data. Taking it back, when you first sat down and thought about your content marketing, when there was nothing there, where did you start? That's a great story. You know, I came in on my first day, it was August 1st, 2016. And I told him, okay, you, you want some leads? I need to create some content and start getting it out there. I posted a couple of ads on LinkedIn. I sent out my first email blast, but I, I need some content. I said, what have you got? He said, I've got nothing. I mean, I said, well, the company, you've got to remember, was 12 employees at that point, all of them engineers. I was employee number 13. They literally had very little except the product. And I said, okay, you've got to have something. He said, I don't know, take a look at this, see if it's helpful. He showed me five slides that he put together for a conference the week earlier. And they were based on some very sketchy analysis of the customer calls that we had in the database at the time. And it showed things like, you know, we found that the optimal talk time for a salesperson is about 46% during discovery, and you should leave the rest of the time for the prospect to speak. And we found that for the best chances of getting the second call with the customer, you'll want to ask about four to 11 questions. And he showed me three more slides like this. Each one had one chart. And I'd never seen that something like that before. And I said, wow, this is great. I think I can use this. I took his PowerPoint presentation, I added a cover slide, I gave it a title and I called it the five secrets of the perfect sales pitch. I hit file, save as PDF, and I have my first ebook. That's how I created my first ebook at Gong. And I swear, this is the, the actual story. And I'm sure I could recover it on some old archive. And I started sending that out and people started downloading it. They're like, wow, this is interesting. I want to know what the perfect pitch looks like. And they started commenting and discussing about these things. Oh, really? Is it 46%? I always like intuitively knew that I should listen twice as much as I talk, but I, I've never really seen it the data. That's really interesting. And then they start tagging their friends. Hey, this is what we were talking about by the water cooler last week. Take a look at this. And it started propelling itself. And we figured we must be onto something. And it was shortly after that, that I hired my first higher into the marketing team. That was Chris Orlov, a name I'm sure many of the listeners know. He was on my team for three years and then three more years on the sales team. And he really took charge of the Gong Labs content series and started developing it into longer form blog posts where we really took an interesting research question around something that's working or not working in sales and put together a very easily consumable piece of content, which is always a trick because the data analysis are going to give us an ugly spreadsheet that you've got to like put your glasses on to even figure out what you're looking at. But then Chris had the talent to simplify all of that into a very simple short story that you could read, you know, on the train on your way to work or, or listen to later on an audio version and just made it super simple. And, and people started subscribing and following and wanting more of that. So that's really the genesis of the Gong Labs content series. And it did create that virtuous cycle that you talked about of we're using our product almost in passing to present these really deep analytics. People get a ton of value out of them without feeling that they're being pushed to buy something. And then when they are eventually in the market, they come to us because of that thought leadership to buy the product. And then they go to their salesperson or customer success manager and said, 
they're waving this piece of Gong Labs content and say, show me how to do that in the product now. I want these insights. So it created the perfect virtuous cycle. And I think a lot of companies can do that if they think hard enough about how to extract insights from their product in a way that's not a sales pitch, but actually providing value from the data itself, not just as a thinly veiled sales pitch. Not every product lends itself to that, but I think more products and people give themselves credit for do. I think so. And that's my mind is going, okay, this would is perfect for Gong. And you found that cycle of goodness where it keeps going up because as you described, how would it relate if you were selling dog food or, you know, something like that, where you didn't have this treasure trove of data and the dog food's not a good example, but no, you know, I, I, yeah. I want to play with the dog okay, food. Let's play with the dog let's food. Let's go with the dog food, David. So if I were selling dog food, okay. I would... I'm making this up as we go along. So we could be going down a really ridiculous rabbit hole, but I think this is worth taking the unprompted example. If I were selling dog food, I would want to come out with some user app that my clients could use, let's say for applying silly filters to their dog photos to encourage them to take lots of dog photos and share them maybe on a network, okay? And as they do that, I would ask them questions about the feeding habits of the dog. Or how many times a day did he eat? What amount of food did he eat, et cetera? Now I've got a database. And after I get a few hundred entries into there, I can start doing analysis. And then I can start publishing data about how to keep your dog healthy and happy. We notice that dogs who eat before 7 a.m. are happier and have more energy throughout the day. If you feed your dog after 10 a.m., he's going to get all cranky and bounce off the walls. You see where I'm going with this? You gave yeah. me the most ridiculous example, but I can create that for you. If I could do it on the fly, then someone could do it much better than I just did. You've got to be able to. And so what I'm hearing you say, though, is that you need some sort of data set. And in the world that we live in, any product should have some kind of data set. So you just need to be creative about how can you collect the data set in order to have something to analyze. That is one way that produces what are probably the most valuable insights because you're using what's known in the research world as primary research. You're the first to tap into this data and produce something. But there is a way known as secondary research where you repurpose something and repackage it as something very valuable. And I'll give you an example. The last company that Amit Bendov, the CEO of Gong and I worked at together was a company called Panaya. Now I'll, I'll try and explain what the company did without making you fall asleep. We did ERP upgrade automation. That's the shortest description I can think of. So companies, large manufacturing companies, they use ERP systems and they need to upgrade them. This was before the days of SaaS, right? Think like you get the CD in the mail once a year with a software update, they need to upgrade it. Now, the thing is with ERP systems is that they're customized in a gazillion different ways. If you think customizing a CRM has gone out of hand, then you don't know what ERP looks like. It's ridiculous. Like there's thousands of customizations in a, if you're like a Boeing or Nissan or large organization, you've customized your ERP in thousands of ways. Now, when you get that CD in the mail and it's time to upgrade, the whole IT department like goes into a bomb shelter because they know that as soon as they install that, that's going to break hundreds of the customizations that they created that are not fully backwards compatible with the old version, or they don't even know what's going to break. Okay. That's what Panaya did. It made software that solved that problem. Now, why, why am I boring you with the story? Because we never got like sufficient data back from our customers like at Gong we do. 
Because in Gong, we store all the customer calls and emails. So we have that data to work with. That's the primary data. We never had that at Panaya because it was mostly, never mind, but we never had that. Now, so what do we do? We thought about how do we create valuable content for our customers to make them want to come back and want to read more from us. And we noticed that every time SAP released one of their ERP versions, they had a website with like 2,000 pages of all the updates that are coming out in this version, which nobody can sit and read. And again, they just perpetuated this problem of, I don't know what's going to break in my system. I'm too afraid to do the upgrade. I'm going to put it off. I can't even budget for this. And so here's what we did. We had someone on our team look at those updates on the SAP website, install the latest update in a sort of sandbox environment at Panaya, run the upgrade simulation, and then put out a two-page report. It was never longer than two pages with a few pretty charts showing, okay, this latest upgrade is going to affect the following HR modules, the following finance modules, and these two GDPR modules. And if you're using this part, then this is what you should expect to change in your system. This is where you want to focus your testing and your code fixing, because these are the modules that your customers' customizations are going to break on. And we just put together a two-page, simple English, six pretty charts explanation of what took SAP hundreds and thousands of pages to explain on the website. So we took their data, we repackaged it, and we started sending out to our entire email list to see if they'd be interested. So every time... SAP published a new support pack or a version, we send out this two-page update and people were downloading them by the thousands. And we started doing this every quarter on the same cadence that SAP and then Oracle and other ERP providers were doing their version updates. And it came to a point where if we were a little late, we started getting emails from prospects asking, hey, yeah. when are you coming out with a support pack update? We're dying to know what's happening and only you can explain this to us in a way that we understand. And so we knew that we were onto yeah. something. That again created that virtuous cycle because see what we did? We used our own simulation technology to analyze the new ERP version in a sandbox. We told people in a really simple way what's going to break, where they need to focus their testing. And then there was a small, subtle call to action saying, hey, do you want to see the customized report of every single thing that's going to break in your system? Sign up here for a demo. And they did. Done. <laughs> so there's a few themes. One is you're taking this very complex situation, 2,000 pages, and boiling it down into something that's digestible. That's, you know, two pages. And everybody's life is so complicated these days that who wants to read through 2,000 pages, right? And then the other one was that you put yourself into the customer's seat, you know, and into their shoes or whatever the analogy is. So you really sat down and said, these are very busy people. They've got a lot going on. It just becomes too much. How can we simplify this in order to foster that conversation? That's always it. If you start always from the side of the customer, what is keeping them up at night? What would make their day a little bit better today? How can you save them some time or make them some money or make them look smarter or do anything that they would agree has value? And then you work back to what you as a vendor are trying to say or sell. That's how you end up usually with valuable content. The worst pieces of content are created in the opposite approach where we just release this new gizmo and we want the whole world to know about it. And it's a solution looking for a problem. And you start talking about, about it from a, a company centric point of view and customers don't understand why they should care and why are you wasting their time with this? Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's so funny. This just as a side note. I realized we have been running 10 bound for five years. And I've never done any customer research 
<laughs> that's probably, you know, it's just me coming up with ideas and things that I think people will think are cool. And, you know, 90% of them flop because I'm the only one who cares about them. I mean, the stuff right? is hard, right? It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to talk to your customers and get into their shoes, especially this is a sales development podcast. And so for SDRs and sales reps who have never been an ERP manager, you know, it's tough to try to figure out what would help them, what would help them to 100%. Yeah. You know, it's their leader's job first to train them on their customer, because if you call an executive twice your age as an SDR and they've got a bullshit meter of a mile away and they can sniff you out and they understand that you have no idea what you're talking about, they will slam the phone on you. So a good SDR educates themselves. They know about their customer's day, what problems they're having, how they can truly help. And you've got to be excited about your solution or or if you're at the stage where you're just offering content, then put that one liner in the email of, hey, David, you probably know that SAP just came out with their support pack number 16. I've decided to send you this two-page cheat sheet that tells you exactly what's going to break in your system. I hope it'll be valuable. Let me know what you think. And if you understand how that's going to help them, then bingo, you've just earned a conversation. I think, you know, the sales development folks who work for you are, are in a much better position because I think that the leadership is the key in helping to forge that. The other thing that I'm really curious about is the brand, because a lot of folks are, you know, they're representing companies that have no brand whatsoever. When you back in 2016, you came in and you've been able to build this amazing brand. And I think people sort of laugh at, at when they talk about brand, you know, they laugh about it. It's like pretty colors. Even you said it, right? It's pretty colors and all the pens are matching and stuff like that. But you've been able to build this very recognizable brand. And where did that start? How did that come out? I would say there are probably two, the two single biggest contributors to our brand success are number one, Brand is too important to leave it to marketing. Branding is not, after we joked about it, it's not putting lipstick on a pig. It's not just taking a mediocre product with a company with the toxic culture and telling marketing to make it all pretty and, and look like a million bucks. That rarely works. Brand is what the company stands for. How are we building a product for generations to help our customers? How does every single interaction with our company look like? I'll give you an example from Gong. Our number one operating principle, we codified eight operating principles very early on in our days. And we hired people and trained people and interacted with people and recognized people based on how they exemplify these operating principles. Our number one operating principle is create raving fans. If you've ever interacted with Gong long enough, you probably heard that term come up at one point. And... Every interaction that we create, whether it's accounts payable or a recruiting coordinator or an SDR or a support person or a marketing interaction, like a marketing event or sending out a piece of marketing content, our goal is to create raving fans. Now, you can't have just marketing do that because if all your other interactions like with recruiting and accounts payable and SDRs are mediocre, you can't create raving fans. Marketing cannot do this alone. So that is one example where we have trained an entire company to create those raving fan moments. Now, once you can do that, 
marketing can go and amplify that and we get to talk to raving fans, which are happy customers and they're happy to share their story and they're happy to get on stage and they're happy to give us a quote for a press release and on the website. But we couldn't do that alone. You can't take you know, crappy culture and product and ask marketing to make it all look like roses. It just, it doesn't work. That's one really important component. So before marketing takes any credit for building a brand, marketing is the steward of the brand. It is not the creator of the brand. It cannot create a brand on its own. Just, I don't think it can be done. The second thing is, and you talked about Gong's brand standing out, that was really a deliberate choice. When we looked back then, and I'm sure it hasn't changed much, maybe changed a little bit, but when we looked back then, this must have been four years ago when we put our first deliberate effort into a visual identity, we looked at dozens of B2B software websites and they all looked exactly the same. They used blues and whites and grays because they're so unoffensive and blend in and nobody can say that they're offended by it. They had a big Mac screen at the top with a screenshot nobody understood except the founders. And then they really followed the same pattern. And we said, okay, we need to break this because if we will try to look like a better version of this, we're going to look like exactly the same. We will get lost in a sea of logos. And I remember even on the logo, the CEO's brief was, you know, when you're sponsoring a conference and there's a wall with a hundred logos, I want the eye to be drawn to the gong logo, create a logo like that for me. And that's where that jaggedy starburst shape was born because no other logo looks like that. Most logos are either rectangle or oval or round. That's like, or square. Those are the common shapes of 99% of the logos. And we created this weird starburst cartoon-like shape and, and your eye is drawn to it. And the next stage was choosing bold colors. And so we went step-by-step, step, like how can we cut through the clutter and choose very bold colors and logos and typefaces and imagery and photography. And that's how we ended up with fuchsia pink and purple and a crazy bulldog as a mascot and the tongue-in-cheek tone of voice throughout our content. And that's why people say, you know, I can see it something from a mile away and I know it's from Gong because we become recognized with those colors and with that dog and with other images and with our tone of voice. You've got to be bold enough to do that. And most brands either just don't give it enough thought in the first place or are too conservative and try to play it safe to like, we'll just play it safe and we'll be one of those blue and whites, but that you're never going to stand out. Like it's bold and distinctive. And I have to say, if anybody's on LinkedIn, the bulldog actually has their own LinkedIn thing that you can. He, he, he does. To. He does. Yes, Professor Orlov. I don't even know if we still have a human operating him, but it started as an internal joke. I've got to tell you a funny story about that LinkedIn profile That's since funny. you brought it up. So, in the first version, we created a fake profile for our mascot, Bruno the dog, and we just called him Professor Orlov, named after Chris Orlov, who was working on the marketing team at the, at the time. And it was just an internal joke that someone ran. And the profile picture was an actual photo of Bruno the bulldog. There is a dog in the profile picture of, of that LinkedIn profile. And we gave him the title of chief security officer and data scientist or something ridiculous like that. Now, here's what happened. One of our enterprise customers was in contract with us and they did a security review to make sure that they can buy from us according to their regulations. And they sent us a list of rejects and questions before they signed and said, one of them, we noticed that your chief security officer is also a data scientist and we can only buy from companies that have a full-time security officer. And we were scratching our heads. What are they talking about? We didn't even have a security officer. And then we figured out they were looking at Professor Orlov's LinkedIn profile. <laughs> our chief product <laughs> officers send that to me with a whole bunch of 
rolling oh, on the floor God. laughing emojis. I went into LinkedIn. I changed the profile to make him only a data scientist. So he's no longer okay. our chief security officer. And the customer bought from us. Oh, but beautiful. It just goes to show the unintended consequences of internal jokes when they get out of hand. Well, so, and unfortunately, so he got demoted, right? He, he got he demoted, unfortunately. <laughs> but it's so true. I mean, there's a very distinctive flavor to Gawk. And I mean, it's not polarizing, but it's like, there's a personality to the brand itself. And they've been really successful in, in establishing that. So that's amazing because it seems like software is behind the scenes and it can almost be a commodity to some extent. So it's really the brand that gives it a unique position in the marketplace. I like to think of it as a combination of both because marketing will get you only so far. If you've got a mediocre product, you're probably not going to win in the long term in most cases. Again, it depends on your distribution channels and other things, but let's simplify the story. I'll put it this way. As Amit uh, often says, we built a product so good that a mediocre go-to-market team could take it to market. And we build a go-to-market team so great that they could push a mediocre product. Now, once we have them both, the sky's the limit. Oh. And, and that's what every company that's, should strive yeah. for. Yeah. That is what every company should strive for. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I've got a whole page of notes here. What are you excited about right now that you're looking out toward either, you know, this month, this quarter, five years from now? What's your most exciting project that you're thinking about? I'm most excited about Gong's horizontal expansion. You know, we started as conversation intelligence and then expanded into revenue intelligence and then added deal inspection and more recently added a forecasting product. And we just announced a slew of new products coming out next year, including our version of sales engagement, which is going to be a new, radically different approach, radically smarter approach to sales engagement than the market is using right now. And to see the best sales team in the world standardizing on Gong as their platform for the most valuable daily workflows of their SDRs, their salespeople, and other teams, that's super, super exciting. Because, you know, it all started with a small dream. As, as I said, I joined a tiny company six years ago and we're getting close to world domination. This is super exciting. This, oh, my gosh. These wow. Companies who were so much bigger than us when we started. And now we've either surpassed them or we're on par or around their size. And knowing what our plans are for the next 12 months and beyond is super invigorating and exciting. And we've just begun. Oh, my gosh. After six years, you feel, you know, refreshed and renewed looking out into the future. That's amazing. You have to keep inventing just to stay in place. Yeah, definitely. I'm so excited to learn more about that, Udi. And, you know, I do see that consolidation happening. And there's so many different point solutions that people are trying to create sort of this Frankenstein tech stack that I think more and more you're going to see exactly what you're talking about. They want, you know, one reliable platform to help them, you know, with their success. And so that's really interesting to see you going in that direction. Indeed. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Sales Development Podcast, sharing your wisdom. And if folks would like to connect with you or Professor Orlov or anyone in your <laughs> network, what's the best way to get in touch with you? LinkedIn is the best place. There's only one Udi Lettergore on LinkedIn. I promise you, I checked. <laughs> If you find another one, please report them. They're a fake profile. So I'm more than happy to connect on LinkedIn, Udi Lettergore. And if you do have a sales team and want to get them to the next level, especially now in an economy like this, where you need to get the most out of every resource that you have, 
go to gong.io and ask for your demo. I completely agree. And I just appreciate you coming on. One last quick story is we were working with a salesperson who was struggling and their gong readout, this is probably one of the most basic things, said that they were talking 80% of the time on the call. And that was a very easy thing to start to address, right? It's and very so difficult. I it's know that that's, that's gong you know, 101. That's like one of the Correct. easiest one. But all you have to do is start to look at the data and you can make a huge difference. So 100%. David, thanks so much for having me. And thank you for everyone who listened this far. Thank you.